Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt once said that the word anger is one letter short of the word danger. That missing D could stand for many words, division, divorce, or even death in cases, just as some who are incarcerated currently. But apart from penitentiaries, even the supposedly free often feel imprisoned to their unsubjugated wrath. Today, we look at anger. We all experience it. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's in America. From WH- Gina, Gina, this- G- Gina, can you stop that for From a minute, WHR- please? Where are my chocolate-covered strawberries? From WHRV Norfolk, Gina, this- where are my chocolate-covered strawberries? I- I've only asked for two things, chocolate-covered strawberries and Chardonnay when I come into the studio. Where are they? From WHRV where- Norfolk. Oh, would you get her attention? She's she's still doing this that. Is what- Todd, Todd. From WHRV Talk Norfolk, this is Watching stop America. Her. Play the music, Todd! Play the music! Play the music! appreciate the quality of the guests we get. I am ravaged with anger and ferocity over the kinds of guests we get that people do not recognize for their integrity. Now, we just listened to Paul McCartney, and he just played Angry. It's from his album. It was a great album. Should have done better and should have sold better, but it made me angry it didn't. But there again, McCartney is wealthy. Got millions upon millions upon millions. Actually, he's a billionaire, and it makes me angry. But I will arrest my anger and gain control because... I have a fabulous guest that makes amends for all those who have formerly upset me, at least today. You see, dear ladies and gentlemen, my guest is Ryan C. Martin, Ph.D. And let me tell you a little bit about him. He is the Associate Dean for the College of Arts and Humanities and Social Sciences. He is the Professor of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And moreover, he is an incredibly insightful, engaging, and entertaining personality, and we are most privileged to have him here. Dr. Ryan Martin teaches courses on mental illness and emotion, including a course on anger. He researches and writes on healthy and unhealthy expressions of anger. His website, called alltheragescience.com, covers recent research on anger and provides anger management tips. And moreover, he also hosts a popular psychology podcast entitled Psychology and Stuff. I like that. He's been featured in the New York Times and also across the water on the BBC Radio's Digital Human Program. And now he's featured here. And I am so delighted to welcome Dr. Ryan Martin. Welcome, sir. 
Thank you very much for having me and for that introduction. I appreciated that quite a bit. Well, uh, you know, people get angry, as you've indicated, uh, in your work and have dedicated your life to, and there's evidently different types of anger. I'm going to start with a very general question. Why do people get mad? So people get angry basically because of a combination of external forces, these things that we think of as provocation. That, that block our goals or get in our way, um, that leave us feeling helpless, that sort of thing. Um, they get mad when those things happen and when they might be in a particular mood or state, what people oftentimes refer to as the pre-anger state, that uh, exacerbates those situations. So maybe if we're too hot or too cold or maybe if we're running late for something or we're stressed or anxious, those are all uh, elements of that pre-anger state. Uh, I was always told, and, and uh, you know, we all took Psychology 101, but then at the graduate level, I had to take counselling uh, courses for a regiment of study I was doing. And I was always told that anger is a secondary emotion. Is that correct? You know, I don't think so, personally. You I want my money back people... from my professors. <laughs> you will hear many people refer to it that way. It's actually something I've been thinking about writing about. Um, quite honestly, I, I'm not 100% sure what people mean when they say that, you know, sort of secondary to what. I think a lot of times people think it's secondary to sadness. Um, and I don't know that that's how I see it. I think sometimes it is. However, I tend to think that both sadness and anger are different ways that human beings respond to hurt. And so if it's secondary to anything, maybe it's secondary to feeling hurt uh, in some way. Well, that's interesting because one of the things I've noted over the years, and, and I'm sure classically you've had cases where you've seen this, are people who say they're hurt. And what they really mean is they're flipping angry. Right. Yep. I think um, for some reason, anger is a very hard, and I think we know the reason it has to do with kind of upbringing and cultural attitudes towards anger, but it's difficult for people to admit to feeling angry. Um, but they also tend to think of that anger as being more the kind of outward aggressive expression uh, of, of the feeling. So I think they conflate anger and aggression a lot. And, and fundamentally, those are two different things. That's very interesting. Can you elaborate on that? Because I, I recognize what you're saying, and it's, I, I believe it to be completely true. Can you give examples? Yeah. So aggression is a behavior, uh, and it is a behavior where there is an intent to hurt someone or something, either verbally or physically. Now, aggression can either be uh, verbal or physical. It can also be like direct or be indirect. Um, and so there are ways in which you can be like passive aggressive, where you can sort of fail to fulfill obligations you said you would engage in. You can spread rumors about people. Those are all aggressive acts. Anger is an emotion. It's a feeling state. And that feeling state, just like sadness, just like happiness, just like fear, can be expressed in infinite ways, right? There's uh, an unlimited number of things we can do when we are feeling something. Now, a lot of times people will express their anger aggressively, um, but they'll also express it through tears, through pouting, through you know just going and being alone um, and sort of social distance. Um, so there's lots of ways that we can express our anger, and those are actually primarily negative expressions I just mentioned. There's all sorts of positive things we can do too. Well, let's work with another cliche related to anger. We've also heard many times said that depression is anger turned inwards. Is that true? 
Uh, I think it can be. Um, I, I don't think that that is typically what's going on. I think depression is a really um, broad category of symptoms that people experience. And sometimes it's, you know, anger at the world that you sort of focus on yourself. Sometimes it's anger at yourself and who you are uh, and, and maybe not living up to expectations. And so you turn it inwardly that way. Um, but I think depression is usually much more than that. Um, one of the things that you've you've alluded to is that uh, goals that are thwarted produce anger. Are we always conscious of that or sometimes are we unconscious of it? I think a lot of times that happens outside of our awareness. You know, when you think about goal blocking and you think about it very broadly, um, I think that is actually the the – uh, cause of a lot of anger that we feel throughout our, our day and our life. You know, whether it's me trying to uh, get to class and having uh, people in front of me walking slower than I'd like to, right? They're blocking my goal. Or if it's me trying to get out the door in the morning, you're going to notice a theme here. Um, and, you know, my kids taking a, a long time to get their shoes on, to get in the car, um, that's goal blocking. Um even the, the frustration you see when you get stopped at uh, too many stoplights or when you try and print something and your printer doesn't work. Those are all things interfering in your goals. Well, you talk extensively about uh, provocations, and you have actually uh, concentrated on five, and they are the following, and I'll let you go and address each of them. Unpleasant circumstances, unfair circumstances, goals blocked, which we've just alluded to and spoken briefly about, uh, that which is avoidable, and a sense of powerlessness. Now, those are the, the five most common. Is that correct? Those are five things that I've outlined as being relevant most of the time. And you don't have to have all five of those in order to, to become angry. Um, however, when you put that kind of combination together, you're, you're really likely to see an angering uh, situation. Okay, well, so let's deal with the unpleasant. What would be just general examples of, of the unpleasant uh, initiator or genesis of anger? Yeah, well, I think it's important as we kick things off to note that it's that even though these are provocations, these are things that we're appraising a particular way. Like we're deciding in our minds that this is an unpleasant situation. And so, you know, whether or not there is a situation that is inherently unpleasant, Sure, there are some, but typically this is our evaluation uh, of these events. Now, an unpleasant situation might be something where um, being stuck in traffic could be an unpleasant situation, um, having someone insult you. You know, just at the core, we're saying basically this is a negative thing that's happened rather than a positive thing. Okay. Now, unfair uh, is your second category. And when I see the word unfair, it always brings back the, the old sentiment, the old expression of righteous indignation, where people get angry. Um, we have many examples of that in culture. Probably the cardinal primary uh, text for Western culture has been historically, whether with belief or without belief, the Bible. And we have an interesting example of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, actually getting angry. And it's at the Temple Mount, and uh, we read that he picks up, moreover, a, a whip or a stick and turns it into a whip, and he goes knocking over tables and sends various items flying around. And for lack of a better term, some people would say Jesus lost it, and uh, he was really angry. But he's angry about the unrighteousness of people trying to exploit people, trying to have a spiritual experience with God and, and basically extorting money from them. Now, 
there's a classical example of righteous indignation. But do we experience, although not from a point of divinity, do we experience the same thing on a regular basis? Yeah, I think this is another big element of that provoking situation. So these are basically these situations where you've decided that you or someone you care about is receiving unfair treatment. Um, you didn't get something you deserve. Somebody else got something that, that they didn't deserve. Uh, something along those lines um, that basically where a decision was made and you find that decision to be fundamentally unfair. Okay. Um, I had an experience I'd like to share with you. Uh, I was somewhere recently where I saw a duck, not exceptional, around bodies of water, which we have in this area. Uh, and there was this duck. And she, and I say she because there was a little ducklet following behind, had a singular duck, which struck me, um, Ryan, as being a bit unusual because I always think of, you know, being a few ducklings following behind Mama. So I immediately thought to myself, boy, this, this duck may have lost its other ducklings. But, I, you know, I felt sympathy for this creature. And I avoided it. The creature was in the area and was very, very uh, apprehensive about my presence, I could see, and was trying to protect her single duckling. So I gave her plenty of birth and stayed away. A family came by uh, with two children, very small children. And they allowed the children to run immediately over to the mother duck, who was already frenzied and anxious, and uh, terrorize this, this duck with its little duckling. The mother was so anxious that heroically, and I do mean that heroically, she immediately covered her little duckling with her own body, imagining from her point of view that she's in peril. I felt so angry, Ryan, at the lack of the parents to explain that, first of all, this is a mummy ducky, and she wants to look after a baby ducky. And it was a wonderful learning opportunity, I thought, for these children to learn about um, sympathy, empathy, and concern. And, and I wanted one of the parents to say to the, their child, you know, well, you know, mommy and daddy, we really love you. And we'd get very upset if anyone was around trying to possibly hurt you. That's how this little ducky feels. Didn't happen. In fact, to the contrary, they laughed and giggled at their children terrorizing this, this little duck. I would have spoken up normally, but I wasn't quite con convinced that the person who was there, the daddy, was going to be singularly accepting of a verbal discussion without turning it physical. So call it cowardness or what have you. I just thought it's the better of wisdom not to pursue this. But that has not left me for about a week. And I keep thinking about it. What's going on? Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. So um, when, when I, I have one quick follow-up, and that is when you've been thinking about it over the last week, have, what have you been thinking about? How unkind people are to animals. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, and I ask that because if you were, you know, for me, one of the things I'd probably be thinking about, and I tend to be a ruminator, which is uh, one of the, the consequences of anger uh, sometimes. But if it were me, one of the things I'd be thinking about is questioning whether or not I should have spoken up, whether or not I should have done something. That that would have been a thing I kind of hung on to for a while. In most cases, um, I would have. Yeah. You know, I think what happens is like you see that situation and it probably, a lot of times that level of anger um, or that type of anger comes from a place of um, sometimes it's really big picture, right? We start thinking about things in terms of, oh, what is the, the state of the world today? Why, why don't these people get it? Or, um, you know, <laughs> Precisely. Uh, you're reading my mind. Yeah, that, right. that's the amplification. Like, what is wrong with this person, this couple, and humanity in general? You got it. <laughs> yep. 
you know, that there's a that there is a sort of big picture. And I think this actually uh, years ago when I had young kids, I actually wrote a piece for All the Rage uh, about this very thing, about kind of sometimes this anger that parents uh, get at other parents for letting their kids kind of run amok or behave in ways they wouldn't and where that comes from. And I think some of it is that kind of big picture. I, I see this as a symbol or a symptom, I should say, uh, of a much, much bigger problem. And on top of all of that is just the fact that, you know, this is a case where you see like cruelty and unfair treatment in this case of a, of something particularly fragile right there in front of you. You've triggered triggered something in my mind. First of all, for those who are joining us right now, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Ryan C. Martin, Dr. Ryan C. Martin, PhD, and he is the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and he has written extensively about anger. You've just triggered something again, uh, a recollection. Do you remember Stephen Covey? Stephen Covey, uh, two decades ago at least, wrote a book called The Seven Basic Habits of Highly Effective People. And he spoke, and I think may have even coined the term paradigm shift or changing paradigms. And he gives an example of the story of a man who was in New York getting on the subway uh, about nine o'clock one day, and he got on the subway, and he was in the car alone and was enjoying it. And was going to read a copy of the Sunday New York Times, when this man got on with two kids, and the kids were running all over the place, and this was really driving this guy crazy. The kids were on the chairs and screaming and what have you, and he observed the father doing absolutely nothing. Finally, the man couldn't take it anymore, and he turned over to the father and he said, "Look, can you please get control of your children?" And the father turned around somewhat dazed and said, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. We've just come from the hospital and their mother has died. Suddenly, an immediate paradigm shift, changing, no longer anger. In fact, self-speculation about the motivation for him even saying what he said, and now a different viewpoint. How much of our anger is based simply on not having the cor- correct perspective on a circumstance and the need, perhaps, to have a changing paradigm. Yeah, I, I actually think quite a bit, and I have heard that example before, though I didn't, uh, I didn't know the source. Um, but I, I think a, quite a bit. One of the things that happens as we go through life is that there's actually a lot of gaps in our knowledge and our awareness of what's going on around us. And so we fill in those gaps uh, unintentionally. And the the way we fill that in, we act as though it's real and certain. So, you know, in that situation, maybe the person decides, okay, this guy is just a terrible father who doesn't have control of their kids. And then that becomes kind of the way in which you tend to think about that person. We, We call that inflammatory labeling. It's one of the appraisal styles we know is associated with anger. But if we get new information that changes the way in which uh, we, we think about this or we perceive this, then it ultimately leads to a, a different feeling state, maybe empathy, maybe something else. This is something I actually think about on the road all the time. I've said before that driving is um, like kind of the perfect situation to lead to anger. And part of what makes it such a perfect situation is that we know so little about the people around us. And that car that's driving too slow, quote unquote, in front of us might be driving so slow because it's their first time on the road after an accident. Um, You know, 
we don't know anything about the people around us. And so we fill in those gaps with that person's a hazard, that person's not focused, that person is unaware, that person's too old, uh, put that in quotes, and so on. What is, and the people are driving right now listening to us, what is the best way to handle, to manage the anger and frustration that we feel periodically while driving? Yeah, that's a really good question, a really important question. And so real briefly, I'll say anger occurs because of a provocation, right? People driving too slow, we'll use that as our example. That pre-anger state, the mood we're in. So in the case of driving, right, our emotions are escalated because it's inherently dangerous. Uh, How we appraise things, so how we think about that provocation, but then there's also what we do when we're angry, and that's the, the part that comes after that. And, and I've already said there's infinite ways to handle it. So how do you manage your anger? I personally think you look at that entire model and you think about where you can intervene. Some people, it might be smart for them to take alternative routes, right? So they limit those provocations that they experience. They take alternative routes. Maybe they wait a little bit so they don't hit traffic. Maybe they leave a little earlier so they don't feel as rushed, right? So they they are uh, addressing both that pre-anger state and the provocation. Sometimes, though, that's not something you can do. And if that's the case, then it's really about thinking about uh, that appraisal process catching yourself as you begin to catastrophize, right? As you begin to say, oh, now I'm going to be late for work. I'm going to miss this meeting and then I'm going to get fired or whatever. Um, You have to catch yourself in the middle of that and think, what are the reasonable consequences here? What is the most likely thing to happen if I'm a few minutes late? Um, First of all, will I be a few minutes late? Is this really, is that really a likely outcome? Another is to think about, um, uh, other ways of appraising things to think about who's really to cause uh, the cause of this. Um, sometimes people have a tendency, especially on the road, to misattribute causation, uh, which means that they put the blame where it doesn't necessarily belong. Um, there's certainly labeling. We label people as idiots and fools and a host of other sorts of things. And sometimes it's helpful to catch ourselves when we do that and come up with a, a better way of thinking about it. Um, and so it's really addressing that appraisal process. But then finally, it's about evaluating the what, what do I do now, right? I am angry. How do I, how do I catch myself? And maybe I take deep breaths. Maybe I find ways to relax. Maybe I make a point of actually getting over into the slow lane and just saying I'm going to set my cruise for the speed limit or, or whatever, and I'm going to try and let this go so I don't make a mistake or, or, or do something that makes the situation worse, like uh, tailgating or, or you know cutting someone off or giving someone the finger or whatever. Do some people have a proclivity to default to anger simply because their nervous system has just become comfortable with that? In, in a sense, I guess I'm asking, do some people enjoy being angry? Yeah, I think anger is a little different than some other quote-unquote negative feeling states in that uh, if you think about anger compared to sadness or compared to fear or guilt or jealousy, if you were to just ask yourself of those you know, four or five emotions I just mentioned, which would you most like to feel right now? Chances are anger is, a, is the one people would choose, right? They'd rather feel angry than jealous or guilty or sad or scared. Um, and I think it's because anger has a has a tendency to um, empower people a little bit. Now, I, I start by saying I don't think any emotion is actually inherently good or bad. I think they can be good or bad, depending on what we do with them or how often we feel them. 
But I think people gravitate towards anger that way because it ends up uh, feeling more empowering. Now, there are all sorts of problems with anger. It can lead to all sorts of problems if we don't handle it well or deal with it well. Well, let me ask you another question. Can anger be taught or is it caught? Uh, Yes, it can be taught. Um, I think one of the things we know, and this is a, a... an interesting rule when it comes to emotional development in general is um, that kids tend to model some of the emotions that they see from their parents. Um, And so a lot of times um, kids will, uh, you know, whether it's uh, positive emotions and happiness and joy or more negative emotions, sadness and anger, kids will end up doing a lot of the things that they see their parents do. Um, even recently, I actually noticed with my own children um, that, you know, my, my wife and I do what a lot of couples do. And at the end of the day, we, we sometimes we spend a little bit of time just complaining about work, right? And t- sharing work stories, complain about that. And I recently noticed my son doing that at the end of his school day, that he's nine years old and kind of complaining about things. And I thought to myself, is that the, is that the tone we want to set? Is that what mm. we want? and the kind of person we want him to be. And, you know, for me, the answer is no. Yes. I don't want him to come home and immediately start complaining about people. And so that's a thing we've started to shift uh, about how we interact with each other. Um, and the same thing's true. If, if you've got parents who yell, if you've got parents who scream or swear or, or things like that, chances are that's what you'll uh, gravitate towards. Can anger be used, and I'm going to go to a sociological large-scale vantage point in this. Can anger be taught as a form of manipulation to control people? Some would have said in the past that Karl Marx was an expert at making people feel angry because he conveyed the idea that they did not have and that they were entitled to more, which propagated anger, which propagated support, which propagated a movement, which some would say led to communism. Can you tell a group of people that they're being mistreated uh, as a form of making them angry, and then once you've made them angry, perhaps manipulate them for your own devices or purposes? Absolutely. I think we see a lot of examples of that. And I would actually say there's there's two ways. There's the, the, the global big sort of big picture sociological perspective that you're talking about where you see people using anger um, – just as you're talking about, you, you tell people, hey, you don't have the things you should have, and uh, that motivates people to the polls, it motivates people to uh, to uh, protest, it motivates people in a lot of ways there. And in fact, there's even some research on this um, looking at what people are more likely to click on, whether it's a, a, an ad, a political ad that makes people angry or a political ad that's more neutral. Typically, we see that they're more likely to click on one that makes them angry. Um, and so there's actually a financial incentive from the uh, uh, politicians yeah, to essentially uh, make people angry because it means more clicks on their ads. How is Internet anger different? Because it is, it is evident. I mean, all one has to go to is, you know, uh, there's many, many sites and you can see that there are people propagating anger. Uh, uh, there's a great proliferation of anger, and it's it's almost by design. So when people get angry on the internet, what what's going on, and what are the typical differences from say face to face anger? At the core, it's 
very, very similar. And, and all of those things we've talked about already are still going to be the same. People get angry for the same reasons on the Internet. I think one of the big differences, though, is pre-Internet, or not, maybe not pre-Internet, but pre-social media. I came down in the morning and I made myself a cup of coffee. And I don't know what I did while it was brewing. I probably stared out the window. Uh, who knows? Now I uh, go downstairs, I turn on my coffee maker, and I typically grab my phone or my iPad, and I sit there and I scroll through Facebook or Instagram. And what that means is I now have these new, what I call, opportunities to feel things, that I'm being exposed right out of the gate to things that might make me angry or sad or scared or happy, you know, depending on, on what I see. And so we're just inundated with a lot more information than we once had. It's the equivalent as if one were to walk downstairs, grab a cup of coffee, look out their front window, and there were 500 people on the front lawn with signs screaming things. Yes. You know, you're being exposed to all of this information. And a lot of that information, as you said, seems to be designed to make people angry. Um, And it's different than especially when you add kind of the the clickbaitiness of all of this that – um, we also know that newspapers know that things that, that drive emotions like anger are more likely to spread. So articles are more, you know, it's different than reading the newspaper was 15 years ago because the newspaper wasn't always designed to make you feel things. It was designed to give you news. Now I think it's more explicitly designed to make you feel things. And that means that you're going to get angry more often that way. It also means that you it's easier to respond. And so the language and the, the way in which what we do when we're angry is different than it once was. We can say things in a very public way that we couldn't do before. Um, you can fire off an email uh, differently uh, than we once did. I mean, there's just lots of ways for us to respond that the Internet and technology provide. Well, what's with the capitalizing? I mean, people who put everything in caps and 15 exclamation points. Uh, I mean, that's really blowing up. Yeah, people are really finding ways to communicate uh, that they're angry, whether it's, you know, emoticons or all caps or uh, just uh, other mechanisms. You know, I mean, one of the one of the studies we did recently, we found that um, and this was a little bit surprising to me, but people use Snapchat to convey anger much more than I thought they did. And I think one of the reasons is because, one, it's a little more private than those other uh, other venues, right? So they mm-hmm. can share very specific angry things with a, with a friend, but it also provides them a, a, a mechanism, like a new language for communicating that because they can take pictures of things and they can draw things on those pictures, you know? And, and so it's a way of communicating that's different than what they, what they could do just via a text. There are some people who are struggling with who they are because of their anger. They, they feel enslaved to their anger. They have family members who have told them, you've got to get your anger under control. They've had bad relationships with employers uh, socially. They've uh, basically isolated the very people they love or feel themselves now ostracized as a result of their anger. Offer them hope. Where is the hope? And can you give them some directive of how to begin, not necessarily cure, but begin to manage their anger and get help? 
Yeah. You know, the advice I would give to anyone is if you have even had questions about whether or not your anger is appropriate or whether or not it's problematic, if you've ever been told that your anger uh, is troubling to someone, especially to a loved one, I would say really strongly consider reaching out and getting help. Um, The American Psychological Association has a psychologist locator on their website. You can go in there and type in your zip code and they'll give you some options there. There's lots of resources that way. If you Mm -hmm. go to apa.org, that'll get you there. It's also on the resources tab of my website, which is alltheragescience.com. You can go there and you can find the psychologist locator under resources. And, you know, get tied into that system. Um, It is too bad that it's so hard for people to ask for help. And we've done a a terrible job of stigmatizing therapy in the United States. Um, And that's uh, that's unfortunate. But there's lots that can be done. I've watched people make real great strides in addressing their own problematic anger. And uh, it it can certainly be accomplished. So is it fair to say that we misjudge many angry people and we think of them, frankly, in terms of being behaviorally bad, which to a degree they may be, but it's probably a greater truism to say they're damaged people who don't know how to handle, other than by anger, what's going on inside them. I think that is very true of the vast majority of angry people I've known. I tend to think of it in ways that are very similar to people who are depressed or anxious Um, These are emotions that they are having a difficult time controlling, and um, they aren't bad people. They just are are struggling with this, and the problem with anger compared to those others is that a lot of times there are very direct consequences to those around them, and uh, those consequences make people think that they're, they're bad when ultimately they're just struggling. You are listening to Watching America. To hear more about the psychology of anger, listen to an extended conversation with Dr. Ryan Martin at whrv.org slash watchingamerica. We now turn to another conversation focused on the experience of anger, when controlling anger becomes a problem. Host Dr. Alan Campbell speaks with Jenny, who struggled with anger as a child and into adulthood. She eventually found a group called Emotions Anonymous, or EA. We jump into their conversation to hear about the steps Jenny took through Emotions Anonymous that she says helped her gain control over her life. So coping skills, uh, you found out predominantly by Emotions Anonymous Mm -hmm. how how to cope. What was your first experience? You went to your first meeting. You said you read in the newspaper Mm -hmm. uh, about it. You Mm -hmm. went, tell me your fears before you actually arrived at the facility or reservations that you may have had? Okay. Um, well, it was actually held in a church, but I um, still was nervous uh, mm-hmm. because I didn't know who I was going to be meeting, who I, I wasn't sure if I was really ready to open up to anyone at that time. Um, this was in 2011. And I remember just being so nervous. And I got there super early because I wanted to be one of the first people there so I could see people come in. And when I was there, there was only one person there, the person who uh, usually sets up the meeting. So I just sat down and the person was so friendly and so uh, like open, welcoming. I just uh, told him my entire story and what led me to the meltdown and breakdown and why I was there. 
What did you think of the other people there? Um, as they slowly came in, I kind of wondered why, you know, what, what were what were their reasons for coming in? Because, um, you know, different people come in for different reasons. And uh, when we started sharing towards the end, I was very fascinated that I wasn't alone. Typically at 12-step programs, you have people who, who will go to a microphone and will speak if a mic is needed. Sometimes a circle can be much smaller and a mic is not needed. Mm-hmm. What effect did that have on you to hear somebody else talk about their anger and feeling out of control? Their story was very enlightening and very um, emotional as well. And I, I, was, I was amazed um, what they had been through and what, how they have overcome things themselves with the program. Did it produce hope? Yes, definitely. I've learned that hope can stand for hold on, pain ends. I try to remind myself every day. That's very good. Hold on. Pain ends hope. Well, you go to the first meeting and it concludes. Was it an evening meeting or a day meeting? It was evening. Okay. It was a Monday night. Monday night. I remember very clearly Monday, 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. And it concluded at what time? I believe it was 8.30. 8.30. You walk outside... I buy a book first. Oh, you buy a book That's first. That's how. Okay. It, yeah. Which book did you buy? <laughs> I buy their Emotions Anonymous blue book, the big book. I was just so, when I was reading it, there was just so much information. Um, half the book was on the 12 steps and the other half was life stories from different people. Mm-hmm. And those, those different people's stories were really, I wanted to read all of those right away. And then um, I was wondering how do I get through the 12 steps. There's just, I couldn't imagine being where other people were further along in their recovery. Um, Like, I was like, I don't think I can do this. This is so much um, information, so much things to do. I could never forgive those people who hurt me. And it was so much information at the first time, but I was definitely inspired. How long was it before you went to the second meeting? Um... It was probably a month because I was still nervous about the other people. I didn't know them. I didn't know if they were going to be the same one, same people there because different people come to different meetings. So you were slightly afraid and apprehensive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you read the book and it encourages you. Mm-hmm. What's step one? Step one is admitting you're powerless over your emotions. And that's curious because most people would say, well, you know, you have your emotions and you are responsible for your emotions, but the fact is step one is learning that you're powerless over your emotions. So what's step two? We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I I guess many people would presume that's God, right? Or a higher power. Or a higher power, Mm -hmm. okay. And um, had you believed in a higher power before going to Emotions Anonymous? I was raised strictly Catholic until the age of 18. uh, And then I felt more like a spiritual person. I wasn't as religious, didn't go to church uh, as much. And uh, what was interesting is when I went to EA, I actually started reconnecting more with a higher power and getting more spiritual than before. And it reconnected me with a part of me that was missing, the faith part. And um, I liked how in the EA book it says the group itself, EA, the people there who are supporting you can be a higher power. And what was the third step? made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of a higher power as we understood him. Okay, so you're basically saying you're not in the control seat anymore. Is that it? Yes. Right? That step was difficult for me because I do not let go of control easily. Um, I want to be the one in control. So 
that was a step that I it took me a while to learn to um, let just let it let be. <laughs> yeah, to let to let go requires you to trust. Correct. And if your trust has been violated, it's it's a very brave step to attempt that and and take some time. Now, while you're going through this, progressively, are things getting better in your life as you're working on each step, or is it a question of you know sometimes two step forwards, one back? So they had a journal of recovery book um, where you can work on your own personal custom story with the EA um, workbook. Mm -hmm. And I filled that out first because that seemed to be the easiest for me answering questions on and seeing how the EA literature can relate and help me in my life. And I went all the way to the basics from my childhood and everything, wrote all of it down and worked the steps as they they suggest. And I think that really... um, made the biggest impact for me. So let's get to step four. Mm-hmm. What's step four? Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now that's an easy sentence just to say, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to do. Yes. Um, I would imagine that was one of the most difficult things because you really have to ratchet back all the previous memories and associations, which in of itself can be extremely painful. Correct. How did you do this, and who did you go to to make a, an inventory of, of past mistakes and hurts? Mm, I wrote down as much as I could think of at the time, and then later on I made another inventory um, when I could think of more things that I wanted uh, to work on. But um, I spoke with a therapist, and I explained to her about the EA program because she had not heard of it. And um, I opened up to her about how I wanted to share my inventory and work through things. It was like a burden is lifted off my shoulders. Like all the things I've been holding on to for so long. Again, easily said, but very significant. Number five, mm-hmm. what did you do for step five? Admitting to a higher power to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Yeah. There was a lot of things I had on that list. I remember specifically um, in that step uh, when you're reading in the book, it mentions shoplifting. And I remember when I was 13, I had shoplifted at Macy's. And um, uh, yeah, and so I had to write those things down. Uh, I know one of the steps, as much as possible, is to make amends. Um, did you attempt to Yes. Write a letter to Macy's or anything, or to say, I'm yeah. very sorry for this? Or yes. How did you do that? I actually, uh, my version of uh, making amends was um, buying Macy's gift cards and giving them away as gifts to many people. And um, that was my version of amends. But yeah, I did um, apologize to the owner at the time. No, I, I'm just struck with how very lovely that was that you did that. Um, Okay, let's go on to uh, number six, I think we're up to. We're entirely ready to have a higher power remove all these defects of character. To allow a higher power to remove all the defects of character. Mm-hmm. And that's not done overnight. <laughs> is, it, is it an ongoing process or, or is it completed? Uh, ongoing process. Um, the first time I heard this uh, step, I said, I don't have defects. I don't like thinking of myself <laughs> of having defects. <laughs> but uh, I, I learned, you know, there is definitely things I um, needed to work on, you know. Um, and so I'm, I'm still working on certain things. Um, you know, patience is one of my favorite things is to um, work on my patience. What's the next step? Seven, humbly mm. asked him to remove our shortcomings. 
Okay, so you're asking a higher power, or some people would say God, mm -hmm. to remove uh, the shortcomings in your life. Yes. And has the higher power or God done that for you? Um, I think with faith um, and hope um, and belief that for me, I feel like he has. He has? Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Now, before we go on with uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, tell me what was going on with the people around you. Did they notice a difference or... Did you keep this to yourself, or, or how did you manage this new phase of your life? Well, um, I remember in the beginning when I first was working on my recovery seriously, they um, all mentioned that I seemed to have um, more patience and more uh, seemed more calmer and less. Um, I got less upset as easily, and um, I, I didn't tell them at first what I was doing, but uh, later on I would mention that I, I was getting support and I was get, I was learning new techniques to deal with um, the issues I had. Now, um, through any of this experience, did you have a, a romance going on in your life at all? Or? Yes. Okay, and how did that work in conjunction with this new evolution of Jenny emerging? Um... <laughs> Uh, it was quite a few whirlwinds. Um, there was one relationship I was in for 12 years. So they saw the before, during, and after of uh, EA. And they've said to me they're very proud of how far I've come and grown from what they remember or the times I would be angry and throw things at them. I remember now that I threw a microwave at that particular person at, at, out of anger. Um, a microwave is a heavy object. Yeah. So you, you lifted up an entire microwave oven and threw it at the person. I remember, yeah, that in that I was in a relationship with, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go on to eight. Mm -hmm. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The first time I did this list, I remember thinking it's pretty short because I felt everyone had harmed me. Mm. But... Um, over the years, I've definitely added people because I've began to realize how my behavior had affected others. It's amazing, isn't it? As the years go by, as we are more self-reflexive, we, we see things entirely different. Correct. And those that we thought had failed us in actual fact, we find that we may have failed them mm -hmm. uh, as well. Next step. Okay. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Was there an ins instance where to make amends would have p potentially injured them or somebody else and you elected not to do it? There was a bully in particular that I wanted to make amends to that I, I did also wrong to. And I, um, I never have because I was afraid it would make things worse. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be an instance. But what I like about this one is also there are people that have passed away and it's hard to make amends to someone who's passed away. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up doing was going to the gravesite and uh, speaking from the heart and as if they were there. And uh, we use the word cathartic, uh, meaning to bear something out and, and, and find relief and make it, um, in a sense, come to fruition. Looking at a gravestone, was that helpful? Um, it was difficult um, because this was my mother in particular, mm -hmm. um, and I had a lot of uh, anger issues with her and how she had uh, abused me, but um, I felt like it was a necessary thing for me to do. I remember the first time I tried, it was a little too hard, 
So I, I would try again and again. So, so you'd make repeat visits? Mm -hmm. Correct. And wow. Yes. Okay. So I finally got to the place where I was happy with what I had to say and let it out and, you know, yeah. What was the longest you would stay at the gravesite? <laughs> Maybe 30 minutes. <laughs> That's a length of time. Really, is. there's a lot you can say and reflect on in, in that time. The next step. Okay. Um, what are we up to? What number? Ten. Ten. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Promptly is the key word, mm -hmm. uh, because the other ones already have encouraged you to take, you know, an inventory. Inventory, but to do it promptly uh, is another factor. How does one do that? <laughs> uh, I like to review at the end of the day whether or not I might have hurt someone. Um, whether it was intentional or accidental. And um, if I did, I try to either, you know, text message or whatever I can do, maybe have lunch with them and, you know, say sorry if I did do something. But I have noticed for me promptly is hard because for others they might be able to say sorry right away, but for me it's very hard to admit that I did something wrong, so it might take me a little longer than others. So pride comes into it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet it happens in all in all spheres and all realms. Uh, um, we're a very, very happy team uh, making Watch in America, but sometimes even uh, those of us in Watch in America can have crosswords. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> um, okay, and now we're up to... Eleven. Eleven, okay. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with a higher power as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That's a long one. <laughs> it is a long one. Okay, so some people might say it's, uh, for all intents and purposes, it's very close to prayer, possibly, mm -hmm. okay? And have you made that a regular practice in your life? And if so, how have you done it in your case? Um, in the beginning, I would try to meditate. And uh, later on, I would use basically like throughout the day, um, once or twice, I would try to reflect. And it would be as if I'm speaking, whether it was to my father who passed away or just to a higher power. And I would try to... Um, get in touch with that side, spiritual side. And finally, we come to the momentous 12. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I say that recognizing that very often you can repeat the whole thing all over again. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, it's, it's cyclical. It just goes mm -hmm. around and around uh, by, by purpose. But number 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. What does it mean to carry this message? What does that mean to you? To me, it's to spread the word of EA, to help others find a support group um, local to them and that where they can find hope and also learn about the 12 steps of EA and to help themselves. Well, you're certainly doing that this very moment. Uh, what is your hope for the future, Jenny? Mm -hmm. Being at peace with myself um, uh, and continuing to lead a successful, happy life where I'm helping others. Has it really gotten better for you? Yes, it has. M majorly. <laughs> majorly. Majorly. Uh, we talk about sobriety in relation to alcohol, and but they also, people, we've had guests on this show who have been in, in uh, uh, sex addicts uh, mm -hmm. anonymous mm -hmm. and 
they would talk about sobriety to you to be to to be sober what is sobriety in your understanding as far as your emotions are concerned there is a worksheet that we have in EA and it shows the downward spiral and then the upward spiral so the bottom is the emotional rock bottom and what I like is that I can always see on this chart which is on my refrigerator where I'm at at the time so if I notice that I am starting to have more anger issues or you know if I'm beginning to just get go downwards I can see see that on there and I can look on the cross right across it tells you what you can do for example go to another meeting call someone for support and I like that I have a way to get myself right back up it's getting better all the time I used to get mad at my school teachers that taught me You've been listening to Watching America. Our pleasant and friendly recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our good-humoured producer is Paul Bebo. Our congenial and kind senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our calm and confident executive producer is Chuck Dowd. And our delightful chief of content is Heather Mazzoni. And our jovial CEO is Bert Schmidt. I am the series creator and host, the at times humorous and hopefully playful Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, blessings and take care. To find out more about Emotions Anonymous, visit emotionsanonymous.org. And to find resources from the American Psychological Association, visit apa.org. Find extended audio with psychologist Dr. Ryan Martin and Jenny at whrv.org slash watchingamerica. Watching America is produced by WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. Another View history lesson, another view on health, race, let's talk about it, another view selected shorts, and the famous, or some might say infamous, Another View roundtable. You'll find it all every Friday at noon on Another View. Hi everyone, I'm Barbara Ham Lee. If it affects the African American community, then we're talking about it. Everyone is welcome to join the conversation on the award-winning Another View every Friday at noon, right here on 89.5 WHRV.